Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of The Conversation of Our Generation. My name is Nick Jamel, and I'm the creator of The Conversation of Our Generation, the host of the podcast, and today we're going to be asking the question of, do facts matter? And it was prompted today because of some things in the news with uh, AOC noting that Milton Keynes, the famed economist who doesn't exist, said something, as well as just another one of Trump's careless uses of language that doesn't really matter, but it seems to matter a lot to some people. And we're going to talk about really why the facts do matter, but sometimes they really don't. And so we're going to talk about that today and how that's used in our world. And so we'll talk about that. The thing I want to get to before I get to anything else is to remind you that if you are listening to this on conversationofourgeneration.com on my website, you can go to iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Leaving it a review and a rating really helps if you're checking it out. Um, those things are really big for me and for the podcast and for the rest of the people who are trying to find this type of content. It's a lot easier for them to then find it. And so that's really helpful. And you can also go to facebook.com slash conversation of our generation or Twitter at Convergen to find out more, keep up on when posts come out, when podcasts come out, interact with me and other people who are, you know, fans of the show and so on. So that's a great place to go. And then you can always go to conversationofourgeneration.com to find out more about what I'm doing and to see other blog posts, podcasts, uh, links to my YouTube channel that has not had a video added to it in a long, long time. So that's very, very early on, but you can go check that out for sure. And so Let's go ahead and hop into the quote of the week, which I think is very uh, pertinent to what we're looking at today. And it's from Henry David Thoreau, and it's actually from one of my favorite books that I've ever read, uh, Walden Pond, which has some parts that are kind of tedious when he starts, you know, adding up his grocery list in the book, (laughs) which he does. But a lot of his uh, reflections on life and on nature and all of that stuff is very interesting to read and a lot of it's really good and it's a good to see someone get outside society and look back on society and not criticize it necessarily but just say ask the question of why we do things because he's like I'm out here living in the woods and I don't need that and in a day like today where if you're detached from your cell phone for five seconds you have a panic attack I think we could definitely ask ourselves some of these questions that he asked and I think it really helped me with my attitude towards social media and a lot of things that I was worried about just saying that they don't matter really. And I'm going to focus on the things that do. But today's quote is not quite related to that. What he says is, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. And so I think this is an important thing to look at that uh, he's talking about going out and getting away from everything so that he's not worried about you know, the social structures, the whatever that is, the, you know, looking good in polite society like he felt he had to do a lot of times, you know, whatever those sort of mannerisms or things that we worry so much about that aren't as important in the end, you know, they're not going to, you're not going to think, on your deathbed, 
oh, I always use the right fork for my salad. I'm very proud of that. You know, I never drank out of someone else's glass because I knew which side my drink was on at the table. You know, those things are not the most important. You know, it's nice to have good manners. Not saying that. But that's not the essential truths that are going to matter in the end. And so this retreat for him was a great way to go. And like he says, to front only the essential facts of life and to see what, see if I could not learn what it had to teach, you know, basically asking life for the answers, asking for the answers in a very quiet place, reading a lot and writing a lot and working through his own thoughts. And that's what he did for, I forget how long it was. It was, I think a couple years um, that he was out there. And then he had a couple more years to think when he objected to paying his taxes because he would not pay taxes to any system that allowed for slavery. (laughs) So he then was jailed and had a little bit more time to think. Um, And he also has a great essay on civil disobedience, which I think I've actually talked about some of this stuff. So I'll definitely link to those uh, more conversations about Thoreau and Walden Pond and uh, civil disobedience in the show notes. So if you go to conversationforgeneration.com, you can check those out. But I think that what he does talk about is that when he says, and when I come to die, discover that I had not lived because he really makes the point that it is essential for life. It is life giving to know those truths that draw you in, that really make your existence and everything around you understandable that make it worthwhile. And so I think that's what we can look at today is what are those essential thoughts, essential truths that really make life worth living? You know, your family and your friends, your religion, your purpose in life, you know, those are the things that truly drive you forward and help you, right? Your day-to-day work even is something that keeps you on track. And, you know, as long as it's not, even if it is menial, as long as you know that you're doing it for the higher purpose, you're not doing it for a paycheck every two weeks or on the first and 15th, you're doing it because you want to support a family. You want to, you know, do something that calls to something higher, right? Then I think you find that. And Thoreau was in a time when religion was kind of being battered (laughs) left and right. It was just under attack constantly. And that sounds a lot like today. And people like him and other transcendentalists were looking for that sort of, they kind of got into, I'm pretty sure they probably were the precursors of our modern new age movement because they, a lot of them, I don't think were Christian or were any organized religion as they like to call them. And so they just kind of, found their own meaning, whatever that means. But I do think that there is a sense that you are drawn to that. And if you don't pay your dues to whatever is present, then you're going to be drawn away from whatever you have. And so I think that one thing we can take from this is that we should confront or to front the only the essential facts of life and to work to find what those are and understand those essential facts. And so, (laughs) sorry, I'm a little distracted. My uh, 
wife is up with the dog upstairs and I can hear him kind of running around and she's trying to study for a test today for nursing. <laughs> so, uh, she is telling him to probably get off of her studying and, you know, cause he'll jump in and jump on the whiteboard and erase stuff that she's writing out and all sorts of stuff. Cause he's a little puppy and he's adorable, but I can definitely hear that argument going on above me. And so let's go ahead and hop into the main topic for today because what I've noticed, and I think I mentioned this at the top, that a few things have come up on the campaign trail as well, but mainly in the wake of this impeachment and on social media from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Gosh, I I was stuck in between her nickname that Andrew Clavin uses, which is Alexandria Occasional Cortex, and her actual name, Ocasio-Cortez, and both are... Uh, both Trump and AOC are definitely both known for um, kind of being inexact with their language, let's say. And they both have had some goofy mistakes recently that have really led people to miss the main point of what they were getting across. And I think that if it's a purposeful tactic, it was really effective for both of them because it got the other side talking about their ideas quite a bit, or at least sharing their post and mocking them. But spreading their idea, even if they didn't engage with the actual point that was being put forward. <clears throat> so the first uh, slip up was this week, AOC made a post and she mixed up the name John Maynard Keynes with Milton Friedman. And she said that the famous economist Milton Keynes, who does not exist, I mean, there might be a Milton Keynes out there, who knows? But there was not a famed 20th century economist named Milton Keynes. And, you know, she mixed up two of the most prominent economists of the last hundred years who kind of disagree on a lot of things. You know, Keynes is the reason why we have the Federal Reserve and a lot of the government spending in order to jumpstart economies. And Milton Friedman was very, very libertarian on many of those things, but was open to having a safety net so that the people who did want to have freedom would per be able to pursue it as long as there's, you know, a moderate safety net to catch the people who don't want their freedom, basically, is kind of how he argued it, that there's always going to be people who are afraid of it and afraid of freedom. And so having something there for those people that, you know, they can access if they need it because they're not going out and making their own way allows for people to be freer in other circumstances. And, you know... It's funny that she mixed up the names and it proves, you know, over and over that she kind of doesn't fully know what she's talking about. She does have a degree in economics, so you would hope she'd be able to get those straight. But at the same time, I definitely had to like double check and look up how to spell, um, you know, John Maynard Keys. I wasn't sure how to spell his middle name, right? I was an econ minor. I don't really remember how to you know, you just have little things like that that you have to look into. And so, I mean, obviously mixing up two people is a little bit different than not remembering how to spell someone's name. But if you, you have to kind of ask yourself if you were, if this was Rand Paul, if you're a libertarian or if you're a Republican, Ted Cruz, and they were giving a speech and they said, or I guess not Rand Paul, uh, Ron Paul, I mean, see, there you go. <laughs> I just did it right there. Uh, but 
if you're looking at a libertarian looking at Ron Paul or a Republican looking at Ted Cruz, would you be jumping all over them for mixing up their name if they're quoting something that an economist said, right? Mixing up two economists' names. And, you know, in reality, it's not the biggest deal because I was really... You can even just go and find the quote real quick. I mean, if you just search the quote that she has, that she puts up, you can find it. And so it's not that big of a deal. And then Trump, also this week, then went out and after his uh, impeachment hearing, and he said that during impeachment, uh, or not impeachment hearing, but the impeachment um, acquittal, he says that he heard... One The one word he wanted to hear, total exoneration. And I'm pretty sure he said exoneration. He might have said acquittal. I think he said exoneration, though. Uh, I couldn't find the clip last night to uh, check that when making my show notes. But Joy Behar then called him out because it was actually two words, not one. Ha ha ha, what an idiot. But here's the thing. <laughs> Both of these people got a ton of social media and airtime totally disproportionate to what their points were there. I mean, to what the little mistake was, you know, mixing up two economists or saying, I heard the one word I wanted to hear total exoneration, you know, those things aren't that important. (laughs) Those are, if anything, minor slip ups, but potentially calculated mistakes that get the other side to mock you, to amplify what your message is and to put it out there more because there's plenty of times where, you know, for Trump or AOC that people aren't criticizing their point. They're making fun of some little silly error that they make in the process, but then it blows up on social media. It blows up on, you know, you get, you start playing the president's exoneration presser on the view and it gets them talking about it. And here's the thing. When People in the middle of the country in Wisconsin are in their doctor's office and the view is on and they see that even if they're not, you know, they're lukewarm on Trump, people around me are just like, who gives a, you know, who cares if he says something like that? He was, I mean, I can just tell you that people who I know around me who aren't big Trump fans, but are kind of apolitical, look at him and think, you know, he's gotten a hard deal. (laughs) Most, there's plenty of people in Indianapolis and uh, some other p- parts of Indiana that are, you know, further, a little bit more liberal for sure. But even people who are a little bit liberal or the independents, I'm telling you, I think he's turning some minds. And I know that there's people who were Sanders people in the 2016 election who voted for Trump in 2016 and are looking at him again, even if Sanders is running. So, I think it's important to recognize that his message is getting to the right people and the more and more it's amplified and the more and more he's mocked for the silly things, the more entrenched and the more people start to give him credit on some of his other stuff because people see how ridiculous it is to criticize him for something like that when he just went through impeachment for two things that weren't even illegal. (laughs) Like there was no crime even ever submitted to the Senate. So how are you supposed to do anything with that? And so people see through all of this, people in the middle of the country, despite what Don Lemon thinks, are not stupid. And 
and whoever those two contributors are, I don't know because I don't watch CNN because I'm not a masochist. And so I, I don't, I just don't understand how this, these people who claim to be so smart can not see what's happening right in front of them. And I guess it is their bubble. I guess it is that idea. But then there's also a little libertarian bubble that crops up all the time where, you know, if you don't know every word of, you know, everything that Mises ever wrote and why Friedman was 25% wrong on his ideas and which 25% that is and blah, 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 then you're not a real libertarian and so on and so forth. And these people will crop up and look at AOC and also plenty of conservatives hopped on this too about her, uh, her, uh, quote about Milton Keynes. And so I'm going to read you the quote and explain why her point got across too. Because what she said in her social media post, I didn't listen to the video because, well, I read it and I was like, that's probably the basic point of this. So I just read the one little quote that was captioned on it. And so what it said, what she said is that famed economist Milton Keynes predicted that by 2030, GDP and technology would have advanced so much that it would allow everyday people to work as little as 15 hours a week and provide for their families. Now, I did not even research to see if he predicted this. It sounds like he might have. He was definitely a uh, kind of one of those economists that looked at some of these things that he was very uh, poised to make, or he was very prone to making predictions that he would never see fulfilled in his lifetime. And so and he was actually very, very smart. And I think that some of his ideas about spending, he would have uh, gone back on had he been able to live and see that they didn't work. <laughs> but we didn't really implement enough Keynesian economics before he died that it really mattered because he died before the end of World War II. I think it was 1943 when I looked it up. So he really didn't get to see the full effect of his ideas that came up really in the, you know, throughout the 40s a little bit and see that it didn't actually work and it kind of started to fail. And then also in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of stuff happening there too that really backfired on the Americans and the economy when we implemented them. But that being said, this idea that GDP and technology would have advanced so much that it would allow everyday people to work as little as 15 hours is not by 2030. It's really not totally absurd. I mean, if you don't care that you're, you know, if, if you work 40 hours a week between now and 2030, <laughs> you're going to have a ton more buying power and hopefully you're going to get promoted and make more money and so on and so forth. And that'll be directly correlated to the fact that, you know, with 10 more years experience, 10 more years down the road, you know, you're making a lot more, you're a lot more productive. Your put, your output is a lot higher because you're a lot more efficient at whatever you're doing. You know those kinds of things. You're a lot more experienced, so on. So you can see that as you grow in your career, you get paid more per hour. The idea here is that technology would advance so rapidly that it would allow us to output so much that we wouldn't need more than 15 hours a week. Now, 
I think that there's a case to be made that possibly super productive people like consultants and people like that could work really 15 hours a week. I mean, there is a book today out that's called The 4-Hour Work Week. I haven't read it, and I don't exactly know what it's about, but I know it's about how to really cram the most important things in, and then, you know, the idea is not that you really only work four hours a week, but that you do all the the, the painful tasks or whatever, I think, for the first four hours. And then the rest of the week, you kind of maintain things. I don't know exactly, but there is a book out there about that right now. So a 15-hour work week 10 years from now is not the craziest thing in the world. It really isn't. Uh, You know, if you just imagine that each year you work one last hour, you get paid, you know, to with inflation. So your raises track with inflation. So you work one less hour, but you only get a 3% raise or whatever it is year over year for 20 years from 2010 to 2030, technology is going to advance so much that the most technology is going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Your pay is going to track with inflation. So you're not going to get, you know, screwed on that end. And then by 20 years after you're working a 40 hour work week, now you're working a 20 hour work week and you have the same buying power. You know, that's a potential thing that could happen. I don't think you're going to be able to live better and better on 15 hours a week, but I do think you could, there's a case to be made that people could potentially live at a similar quality of life or maybe a little bit better because goods will get cheaper because of technological advancement as well over that time. I think that that's possible. I don't see why not because the gains on productivity from technology are pretty incredible (laughs) and even more and more so i mean especially with you know the power that we have in our computers today the power that we have in our phones the ability of people to be entrepreneurs and make their way i mean there are people who if they wanted to could put out five podcasts a week you know and not really do much other promotion i know that there's podcasters out there who have Enough of an audience. The Survival Podcast, Jack Spearco there, does more and more to build that community than he needs to, really. If you just wanted it to be the podcast, he could probably make a comfortable living doing the podcast, you know, an hour worth of research or gathering show notes, you know, or maybe two hours each day and go through and boom, boom, boom. He really has like a 20-hour work week there. If he does two hours of prep, an hour-long show, hour-long post-production and posting it, and that's it, you know, something like that, you could do that, you know, it's not unreasonable, and so it's not actually the craziest thing, and so now the problem is the people who could actually talk about this idea and say, hey, yeah, that's possible, but you're going to have to make some trade-offs, like I just did, who just talked through this idea, this idea, and same with Trump's, you know, total exoneration idea, We just talked through those and actually got to the heart of the matter. Both these people used their opponents to amplify their voice. And in doing so, these people did not confront the essential assertion being made. You know, they didn't confront the essential fact in what was being said. And so there is a lot to really reflect there. I mean, if you look at the, where we are now, what $30,000 does, $30,000 does today 
for a 40 hour work week compared to in 1905, you know, when John Maynard Keynes was like 22. I mean, you live much higher on the hog at $30,000 a year than anyone did in 1905 when, you know, very few people had, you know, good plumbing, electricity, you know, so on and so forth. It wasn't really in most places. It was just, you didn't have nearly any of the convenient technology that you have today. I mean, it's a modest income today, but you still live higher on the hog. And so that idea of the 15 hours a week could be true. And so we need to confront the idea. We need to talk about that and say, okay, what would it take? You know, what changes would be made to our economy because of this? What is going to happen here and there? What would these effects be? Because this is a serious conversation to be had, believe it or not, even though it was put forth in an unserious way. So I do think, you know, the question of do facts matter? I do think they matter when they truly affect the conversation. But, you know, when you slip up and you use the wrong name or you, whatever it is, you (laughs) brag about your crowd size and you say it's bigger than it was and so on and so forth, those, those things don't really matter. They don't get to the heart of things. And so, you know, what a candidate plans to do in office matters. Even if you're libertarian and you say that, well, it's all the same because they're all socialists like some do, fine, but some can disrupt things a lot more. I mean, Trump really hasn't disrupted my life as much as he could have, right? As much as someone who actually gets in office and, you know, works with Congress to pass gun gun confiscation laws or gun buybacks, whatever that is. That really affects your life then. <laughs> so there are people who can. I mean, just ask Virginia. They're doing they're looking at it right now. An assault a supposedly assault rifle ban. Which doesn't make any sense. But there's also, you know whether or not the president is being thrown out of office matters. What your, you know, work week, if you're, if you can live off a 15 hour work week, does that matter? Yeah, that affects your life in a huge way. I mean, just imagine if you could work 25 hours less per week and still live the same lifestyle you do. What would you do? I mean, most people probably, what the real conversation here is would people sit idle for those other 25 hours or would they continue to work the 25 hours more and earn you know, what is that like over two times, two and over two and a half times more, uh, than they would for that 15 hour work week, you know, being the same as what they are now. I mean, if you ask me if I could earn two and a half times more than I could now for working the same amount, I wouldn't really think twice because that would be very nice. (laughs) So, you know, what, what would the actual behavior be in that case. And so those are the kind of questions that we should be looking at. Those are the kinds of questions that we should be asking when these things come up and not get sucked into the idiocy of whatever's going on, because I don't know if it's a purposeful tact that, you know, people are using these silly slip ups to amplify, or if it's just the way we are now where (laughs) Our politicians are just fairly ignorant about little things and they are very good at striking a chord in, you know, the American heart in some way, you know, they're in their constituents hearts. And so people get behind them because of that. 
And so their inexactness or their whatever that is, I don't know if that's a word, but their inability to be exact just gets overlooked by their base because they're so enthralled with the passion and the fervor for a general cause that that person has. And maybe that's the case. Maybe it's not a purposeful attack. They just are very good at tapping into their constituents and what they want and trying to fight for that. And so their base just forgives them. And then because we're so polarized, you don't need anything more than a decent base in most places. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know exactly. But what I can say is facts do matter. They're very important things, right? It's it's important to have the facts right, to understand what you're talking about and all of that. But I also think it's important to cut people some slack when they're speaking off the cuff when, I mean, I get on here and I just talk. I have some notes here to follow so that I can try to be a little bit coherent and I'm not getting off onto too many tangents, but I'm able to get through this with really just talking like I would in a conversation with somebody, right? That's why it's the conversation of our generation. But the point that I think many people miss in this is that it's tough to do what politicians do and to constantly memorize all these little talking points and to, or to go out like Elizabeth Warren tries to do and have a beer. <laughs> but what AOC actually does on social media, what Trump actually does where they do go off the cuff and just talk and ramble, that's hard to do. And that's hard to do accurately and to pull everything together. And so I, I can cut people some slack on a name or a date or whatever it is. You know, if you miss the 4th of July, that's a big one. But if you're if you're talking about some, I don't know, if they're talking about D-Day and they don't know the exact date, okay, you know, we can, we can go over that. That's fine. I mean, it's not the, it's not good. You know, I would hope that our elected leaders would have enough of a grasp on the history of our country, but if you're just talking at the moment, you may know that and just misspeak or forget in the moment because you're, it's not your main point. You're really trying to hammer home this point. You're trying to figure out how you circle back around to that idea and you get the date wrong in the process. Those things happen and that's not the biggest deal in the world. <laughs> so I just think that we need to cut people a little slack, first of all, and then also be on the lookout for that hypercriticism and just see if there's something not nefarious, but if there's something that stinks about it a little bit, because I think that there's definitely a little bit there that I think people are not necessarily being fully honest, I guess. And so definitely keep an eye out and see <clears throat> what the effect of outrage over a miss, you know, someone misspeaking or a misstatement about a fact, whatever that is, see what the outrage is about and really cut through the noise and get to what is actually going on. Because I think that our media is so happy to get out and criticize and make people look like idiots that, you know, there's the chance that they're wrong. There's the chance that it's unimportant to what's being the message that's being conveyed. And so 
definitely keep an eye out. <clears throat> and I think just get to the heart of what's being said and confront that idea. Don't worry about the little things. If it's an essential fact of the point being made, take it on head on. But if it's not, feel free to let it slide. <laughs> That's the way I see it. So thank you for listening to the conversation of our generation today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to iTunes, you know, give it a five-star rating, good review, share it with your friends. You know, you can send the link out to someone if you think this is a good episode for someone to check out, whatever it is. Uh, going to facebook.com slash conversation our generation, Twitter at con of our gen, or going to conversation of our generation.com. I'll have the show notes there. I'll have some more resources on Thoreau uh, that I've put up in the past and definitely go and check those things out. I think it will really help you out uh, as you go forward too. So please share, like, subscribe, all of those things. Those really, really help me grow Uh, and this podcast grow to reach more people. So if you're enjoying it, share it. And that concludes this episode of the Conversation for Our Generation. Thanks for listening today, and uh, let's get the dialogue going. I'll talk to you next week.